What I unfortunately see, you know, across gyms across America, when I go to them, kind of, kind of the people that are more of the fitness fanatic mindset is what we call overtraining. And overtraining and even maybe something called REDS, so relative energy deficiency in sport, is where we train a lot too often for a long period of time, potentially with underfueling, and that would be the REDS. We're in a calorie deficit for a long period of time. And so that is when you're doing, you know, months on end of training or you're really under fueling for your performance. And then you start to see not just these short term dips in performance, but these chronic or longer term dips in performance that you rest for a few days or a week, but you don't get better. You're still in the hole. You're, you know, you might get actually a, there's a, an immediate elevation of heart rate and then there's actually a suppression of heart rate. Um, resting heart rate, overnight heart rate, or something like that. But you have this suppression of, of heart rate due to some hormonal related changes and, and other things that go on. But you're basically the main indicator is you rest for a little bit irritated of time, but you don't feel better. And I think one of the challenges um, is a lot of people, particularly within you know, the fitness fanatic world, have been in such an overtrained state for so long that they don't really know what feeling fresh feels like. You know, you, you've been in this constant state of, I go to the gym five or times a week. I, you know, go for a run every morning. I, you know, I have to skip breakfast or dinner because I'm getting my kids ready for school. I, you know, I really want to do that high intensity interval cardio session after work because I love the social element and the vibe that I get around it. But you've been doing that for months, weeks, weeks months, years. And, you know, you rest on vegetation for a week. You feel slightly better, but you're not, not anywhere near where you, potentially could be. Hey guys, thanks for joining us again. My name is Courtney. We've got Dr. Motley in the house and we're super excited to bring you today's guest. And I have to say much of our conversation hit me hard because I've personally fallen into the traps that we discuss when it comes to training and fitness. So I'm hopeful this discussion will help you find some solutions that change your health outcomes when it comes to your fitness regimen. So our guest today is Troy Taylor. He's an internationally renowned human performance leader and is currently the senior director of performance innovation and strength leader at Tonal. So if you're not familiar with Tonal, we talk a little bit about it in this episode, but it's a really cool home fitness device. My parents actually have one. Shout out to my parents out there being healthy. I love it. Prior to joining Tonal, Troy was the high performance director for the U.S. ski and snowboard team and over his career has been at seven Olympic games, supporting more than 500 Olympians and 50 Olympic medalists. Like, so cool. So if you've been stuck in a rut, doing the same workouts day in and day out, maybe feeling like you're not even getting results anymore, you may need to rethink and simplify your strategy to movement and training. So I think this solution-based discussion is gonna help you identify the individual approach you need to create breakthrough in your fitness journey. With all of that being said, Troy, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me on. In that, that bio, there's a lot of, lot of buzz terms, but. Essentially, what I've, I've spent my career doing is trying to take evidence-based scientific practices and, and apply that to help people perform better. As you kind of mentioned, the first kind of 20 years of my career has been doing that, mainly with Olympic athletes. I've been really fortunate to work for three different Olympic teams. So Team GB uh, in Great Britain, that's where I'm originally from, um, Team USA and Team Canada um, across about seven Olympic Games. Um, and so sort of got to, got to work and, and apply that as a physiologist, as a strength and conditioning coach, and as a sports scientist. Yeah, as you mentioned, about two years ago, um, I made the transition over to Tonal, sort of intelligent fitness, connected fitness, and really trying to actually apply a lot of the same best practices and principles and what we can learn 
to help people on a much larger scale. And it's been a really interesting journey. Yeah. Really excited to share anything I can to hopefully help people as best as possible. That's great, Troy. Like when we talk about tonal and when you made the move, people out there are going to ask, like Courtney was talking about her parents having the piece of equipment. What is the avenue or the avenues that you want to talk about, about uh, strength training? Like what is your specialty? What, you, what do you like to want people know about you? Like, especially like, what does a piece of equipment address? We talked about resistance before instead of versus cardiovascular. Can you touch a bit on that and tell them what tonal is about? Yeah, absolutely. So I start with sort of why I joined because I was in this relatively successful career, a high performance director of, the, of an Olympic team, a successful one. And, and, you know, obviously I've tried a lot of different pieces of equipment in that type of role, particularly training related equipment, whether it's for cardiovascular aerobic fitness or for strength training. And to be honest, I have a pretty high bar of what I'm willing to use with some of these best athletes in the world. And so when sort of I first got introduced for Tonal, which was actually at the start of COVID, when everyone started like, oh, how do I work out? I can no longer come to my amazing Olympic training center. and sort of got introduced to Tonal. I was like genuinely, you know, shocked at how good a piece of equipment could be. And so that's sort of like thinking about that kind of piece. And then secondly, there's this, you know, I'd spent my career, you know, hopefully having sort of impact and it's, it's nice to go to Olympic games and work with these medalists. But, you know, generally I'd be working with 10 to maybe 200 athletes. Um, that's, you know, I'd spent four years and an entire team of 20, 30, 40 people all helping these people. And, and you know, come point of your career where you want to help and, and sort of impact on a much larger scale. And what I really saw with Tonal and what, what I think is, is sort of the, the sort of unique opportunity is this incredible hardware with a opportunity to scale into people's homes, like, like into Courtney's home, you know, parents' home. It's sort of, those are the, the background. And specifically, I think I've always been highly interested in resistance training, aerobic training as well. I've worked in cross-country skiing and rowing and, and, and aerobic endurance sports. But I've been always having a particular passion for resistance or muscle strengthening exercises. And, and what I've found, and I think what the research finds and we see is just not enough people do it. You know, we, we talk around the health guidelines in most countries, talk around like 150 or so minutes of uh, moderate to vigorous aerobic exercise and strengthening exercises a couple of times a week. But what we find um, when we survey people and look at them in the longer term is maybe around 50-ish percent hit those, those guidelines for cardiovascular and for aerobic training, but somewhere between 10 and 30% of people only hit them for resistance or muscle strengthening two times a week. And so I felt there's a huge opportunity because I think there's really sort of some additive benefits if you're already doing aerobic training to what resistance training can do. And there's independent benefits. So if you just, you know, if you just go and do resistance training, there's some, uh, you know, additional benefits that you get from just doing that. So, so that's, that's what I'm passionate about. And, and it's been, yeah, it's uh, definitely an, an interesting ride to see how, how people train in the wild, not in these very sterile environments, you know, Olympic athletes, and you get to work with, you know, big teams and, and micromanaging everything that they do. We, you know, people have, Thankfully, lots of people have bought our device and installed it into their homes, but how they use it is up to them. We try to guide and to inform and to educate, but we get to see how they use it in the wild, in the real world. And I think that gives a really, I guess, very ecologically valid way of understanding people, which is uh, super exciting. You'll hear sometimes people say, well, the best kind of exercise is the kind that you just show up and do consistently. So what are your thoughts around that as opposed to really having a targeted specific approach with weight training? My, my goal of this is not to pitch aerobic training versus resistance training. 
both are great. And, you know, if you can do both and you want thing, you should do both. Like that, I think the health benefits are independent um, and there's, there's benefits separately and additive to both of them. And I would say the biggest benefit is always going from zero to something. I would much rather, you know, even if you don't meet those minimum guidelines of two times a week of strengthening it, while I think that is a good minimum, if you're doing it once, that's better than not doing anything at all. Um, and I, so I think always, whether it's from aerobic training and you, whether 150 minutes of, of moderate to vigorous, which is basically brisk walking, let's not, it's not that you need to be going out and doing hill sprints for that kind of, kind of piece, but you know, 150 minutes, 30 minutes a day, five times a week is, is, you know, things. if you don't hit the 150 minutes, but you do a hundred, that's better than doing none. So I would say my, my, my default, whether it's Olympic athletes or anyone is something is always better. And most of these things we see somewhat of an inverted U type of shape, right? where something can you get a rapid increase, you do a little more, it increases, then it plateaus and either it stays steady or you do too much and become overtrained and you go on the, on the opposite side of the U, where you, know, you get increases of you know, your immune system becomes compromised or, or challenged if you're doing you know, extreme ends of, of physical fitness. So I would say something is always better than nothing. I think the independent benefits for resistance training specifically um, and particularly thinking about, you know, people like myself, I'm in my 40s. I imagine, you know, a fair amount of your audience is probably in a similar sort, sort of stage of life as somewhat we are in, in terms of that. And so the independent benefits are around sarcopenia, the loss of age-related loss of muscle mass. And aerobic training doesn't do an incredible job of that. But resistance training does do a really good job of mitigating or reducing the likelihood of loss of muscle mass. And we know that later in life, not necessarily that we you know, need to be super old to focus on this, but later in life, our quality of life and our health span, so how, you know, how active we can be when we're in later in life, is definitely related to our aerobic fitness and our cardiovascular, but it's actually really very strongly associated with both our strength and our power. Do I have the strength to get out of a chair, to walk up the stairs, to you know, walk to the mailbox, to be independent within doing that? The benefits of strength training for those are, are very significant and have been shown in the research literature a lot, but you don't need to do a ton. Um, and I think you sort of mentioned, Courtney, how people you know, might be intimidated or scared, don't want how their body looks. And I think there's, there's unfortunately a lot of misinformations and fallacies. If it was that easy to get bulky, um, you know, every guy in the gym would have a rocking six-pack <laughs> bulging biceps. I'd be stuck. Like, it's not that easy. Uh, like, you know, we think we're going to get weight training. We're suddenly going to get bulky. It just, it, there are people that are genetically predisposed and luckier to, to maybe put on muscle mass. But for the average person, you, you can put on muscle mass or you can put on strength and you can put on them separately. You can get bigger without getting stronger and you can get stronger without getting bigger, depending on how you train. But there's also a reasonable amount of evidence that, you know, you don't need to be necessarily going and lifting ridiculously heavy weights. You don't need to go in and loading up a barbell with, you know, your max one RM, your repetition maximum, the heaviest load you can lift. It varies depending on hormonal status and, and, and sex, whether males and females and how, how we vary through that. But there's a lot of research um, showing that low load training. So this is like 30%, 30 to 50% of your one RM. So imagine you were doing and the repetitions that you could do for 20 to 30 reps, not huge weight. It could be body weight squats. Mm -hmm. um, doing 20 or 30 sort of that repetition builds muscle mass just as effectively as doing or very similarly to some of the very heavy weights. Mm. You have to take it close to failure. So you have to work hard. Um, that, that is definitely shown in the research literature that if you, you know, if it's too easy, you won't get the stimulus. You don't have to do these heavy weights. 
you know, it might be a body weight squat for some people and doing 20 or 30 of there. It might be, you know, that might have to be a load of say 20, 30, 40 pounds for someone else, or if they're quite strong, then, then even more. But I don't think that we have to be thinking that we've got to go in, we've got to, you know, A, we've got to go to the gym, it can be intimidating, or, or that we have to go and, you know, pick up the heaviest dumbbells or, or set tonal to the highest possible weight. There's a range of benefits. There are benefits to lifting heavy, particularly as it relates to strength or heavier, relatively heavy for you. Um, so that might be 70 or 80% of your 1RM, so more, more of a weight that you could do for, say, 8 to 10 reps and pushing that. And that might work strength, which is a little more important. But um, yeah, this, there's lots of, I would say, my, my sort of underlying message or long-winded ways. There's lots of ways that we can incorporate it. Two times a week, a minimum is probably good. You know, low load training uh, for more of a sort of muscle mass increasing or maybe more heavier load training. You know, I think there's a lot of variety in there. And the, the final thing before I get too convoluted is the idea of this sort of very common theme around exercise snacks. This idea of micro less than a minute's worth of exercises and actually that they have really good function on, on strength, on power, on your ability to sort of manage cardiometabolic uh, related challenges. And so you can do these small. So you might like to go to the gym or work out on your tonal two times a week for 30 minutes, or you might like to walk up and down the stairs 10 times, you know, throughout the day. And mm. there are similar benefits to both styles of training. That is great. When Courtney, that's a great point. When you were talking, Troy, about, you know, when they get intimidated, they go into the opposite side where they can actually do two heavy weights because there's not a lot of education. We're not really educated out there in the, in the exercise physiology world. Like, you know, if you do less weight, you know, it's not good. But people out there are getting smarter. When we talk about overdoing it, and this may be a naive question, but many people out there are probably going to think, how do I know if I'm overdoing it? Like, I mean, that, that may be a very general question to ask. You know, people don't want to hurt themselves. And like you said, the research shows, you know, doing things that are not as extraneous have been having the same benefits. So is there any like common signs and symptoms people would say you're overdoing it or be cautious? Yeah, I think in the research literature, there's two terms that we talk about a lot. And this is mainly in the athletic space, but I think it, it, it translates to the, to the general population. But you've got this concept of overreaching. Um, and overreaching is where I do a period of training where I kind of train kind of hard and I put myself in a little bit of a hole. I might see I lift a little bit less weight. Maybe my sleep gets slightly, not a lot, slightly disturbed. Maybe my appetite changes. Uh, maybe you know uh, my rating of perceived exertion, so I sort of about a one to ten scale. Something that I used to do that I rate as a six, I'm now rating as a seven or eight. This overreaching period is like a short term period. It's a week to maybe a month. Um, and the reason we do this is based on the general adaptation theory, so we or general adaptation syndrome, where we put into our, a little bit of a hole, then we allow our body to recover. We supercompensate. My body recovers really nicely. And then I come out of that, you know, a few days or a few weeks later, and I'm stronger, faster, fitter, healthier. That's, you know, really good in how a lot of Olympic athletes train. And, and certainly, you know, there's some elements of that, of how people incorporate that concept of over, overreaching into the, um, their daily training kind of method. What I unfortunately see, you know, across gyms across America, when I go to them, kind of, kind of the people that are more of the fitness fanatic mindset is what we call overtraining. And overtraining and even maybe something called REDS, so relative energy deficiency in sport, is where we train a lot too often for a long period of time, potentially with underfueling. And that would be the REDS. We're in a calorie deficit for a long period of time. And so that is when you're doing you know, months on end of training or you're really underfueling for your performance. 
And then you start to see not just these short-term dips in performance, but these chronic or longer-term dips mm -hmm. in performance that you rest for a few days or a week, but you don't get better. You're still in the hole. You're, you know, you might get actually a, there's a, an immediate elevation of heart rate, and then there's actually a suppression of heart rate, um, resting heart rate, overnight heart rate, or something like that. But you have this suppression of, of heart rate due to some hormonal-related changes and, and other things that go on. But you're basically the main indicator is you rest for a little bit irritability of time, but you don't feel better. And I think one of the challenges um, is a lot of people, particularly within you know, the fitness fanatic world, have been in such an overtrained state for so long that they don't really know what feeling fresh feels like. You know, you, you've been in this constant state of I go to the gym five or times a week. I, you know, go for a run every morning. I, you know, I have to skip breakfast or dinner because I'm getting my kids ready for school. I, you know, I really want to do that high intensity interval cardio session after work because I love the social element and the vibe that I get around it. But you've been doing that for months, weeks, you know, weeks, months, years. And, you know, you rest on vacation for a week. You feel slightly better, but you're not, not anywhere near where you potentially could be. And so the way that I think we can identify that is, is tracking and logging is probably the best way. And it gives us a, a fair reflection of thinking back, okay, how do I feel? Ratings of session, rating of perceived exertion is quite a good way of doing that. Um, so, you know, at the end of each session, how hard was that? And if so, if I went for a 5K run and I did it in 30 minutes, that's a seven out of 10, you know, and sometimes it might be a six and sometimes it might be an eight. If suddenly that's consistently a nine, nine and a half, and you're really struggling, you're probably in an overreaching or overtraining state. Mm. Um, now, some people might rate that as a five, and I might rate that as a seven. It's about you and how you change. It's not saying that a run should necessarily, or a resistance training session should be a specific, but it's about your relative change. So I so that that's one sort of practical way that we use with athletes an awful lot. You know, other ways that we could think about it, which is slightly more advanced, but something like tonal, we get to measure like the velocity that people lift at. Every single rep of millions and millions of people, millions and millions of reps, billions of pounds lifted, we get to measure the speed of every one of those. And what mm. we find is people get fatigued, they slow down. You, you lift the same weight at a lower speed. You know, you can lift less weight, your volume will decrease. And so we can measure those kind of, kind of pieces from a technology standpoint, which is kind of, I think, interesting and provides insights where we can then start to recommend, hey, it looks like you've been working real hard. Maybe you should take a recovery day. Here's an active recovery. Still lift if you want to, because people like routine, but let's only lift 60% of the weight that you were lifting last week and take a break and see if you recover out of that. So yeah, some, some I would say more like basic, it's a rating of perceived exertion, um, a rating like that, maybe something like tracking your, your resting heart rate isn't a bad idea if you're into that. And then sort of more on the technology side, with you know people like Tonal, but Whoop and Aura and all the other technologies, we can kind of start to get more of an indication from a sort of objective quantification way of, of where we might be getting close to the point where we should think about backing off. I would say one, one more thing. I would just say, typically an elite athlete every four to eight weeks is going to take a recovery week. You see those people winning the podiums, those fittest athletes in the world, mm -hmm. every four to eight weeks, pretty much will program a down week where they will not be lifting at their max. They might be training four, five, six times a week in their hard block. And we, we reduce that back to two or three times. They were lifting, you know, say 10,000 pounds worth of volume. We'll might keep the intensity the same, but they'll only lift 5,000 pounds of volume. Mm. And so the best athletes in the world, the people that have been at the top, have worked out that recovery is as important, if not more important than the training stimulus. 
and we have to program that in. If we keep doing the same thing again and again and again, we're going to dig ourselves a, a pretty big hole. Wow. That's a really good point to make. So would you say that for the average person, because I immediately think like, okay, well, those are, those are Olympic athletes. Those are professional people. Like they're training on another level. So they probably need a week. I'm, you know, I'm a mom, I'm at home. Like I probably don't need a week recovery. Would you, would you challenge that and say, no, you probably could benefit from every other month or, you know, I get that there's probably a, a big spectrum there of where you land, you know, in variability and individuality. But I do think that it's very easy to get stuck in this place of thinking, I can't afford to take a week off because I'm barely maintaining just doing what I'm doing. But a lot of times it's so counterproductive. And I think that's what you're getting at. There's a balance. There's, you can do too little and you can do too much. If you're just hitting those minimum thresholds, you're walking for 150 minutes a week and you're doing two strength training exercises and think a recovery is unlikely unless you're badly under fueling. So you're not eating enough carbohydrates, fats, and proteins. It's unlikely that you're going to need a recovery as frequently, um, I think. And typically in those, the recovery periods come up, whether you like them or not, you get busy at work, at school, at life, kids, you go on vacation. They kind of they tend to, if we look at how people actually train in the real world and one of the, the interesting things, there tends to be something every other month in terms of, mm. uh, of something that comes up where I can do that. So I don't, I don't want to say that everyone needs recovery, but if you're doing, you know, four, five, six, seven training sessions a week. You've got high intensity interval stuff. You've got all these other things. And if you think about how an Olympic athlete trains, this is for the most part, their full-time job. They wake up, they sleep, they think they, you know, they, they are doing this for training, for their job, for their, for their living. So most of their things are designed at optimizing their adaptations for that. They eat the fuels mm. that are going to help them. They minimize the other stresses in their life. They, we try to encourage them to sleep for nine or 10 plus hours every single night because they're training hard. And so they have a lot of things working in their favor, a team of sports scientists and exercise physiologists and physical therapists and others that are trying to take care of them. And so they could maintain these very high levels of training because everything else in their life is somewhat optimized to help them perform. I don't know about you and your training, but that's not how my training looks. Uh, I'm, I'm not optimized to perform in the rest of my life. My, my five-year-old doesn't you know, really, really care that care much if I've got a big training session in the morning with whether he comes and wakes me up at three in the morning. Um, Olympic athletes, you know, quite often, if they have kids, they get to sleep in a separate room and you know, they go and wake up the mom or the dad, whoever's not the Olympian. And so I think what we have to think around is it's a combination, right, of the stress of what we're doing, which is the training. It's a good stress. It's training stress. And we've got to think about, well, what else is in my life is kind of adding to that bathtub. If the bathtub is overflowing with water with training stress, if I'm adding in poor diet or lack of sleep or stress at work or any of those other things, my bathtub's going to overflow. An Olympic athlete takes away a lot of those stresses. Not all the time. They have their own unique stresses. I don't want to say their life is easy because it is certainly not. But a lot of those other life stresses are tried to be minimized so they can focus on training. Most of us in the real world don't get to fill the bathtub with just training. We, we have to you know, do our fair share of, yes, housework and jobs. And there's stressful things that happen, and, and you know, they're both physically and mentally. They kind of fill up, the, fill up that bathtub. So training has to be able to do that. So yeah, long way of saying, I think if you are training frequently, a recovery of every other month is not a bad thing. You are unlikely to get a lot less fit for doing it. 
but there might be a positive benefit. The opportunity cost of doing it is not large. Uh -huh. uh, you take a week off every eight, you're unlikely to get less fit in that week, but you might get fitter. And so we think around the risk profile of doing that from a fitness point of view, there's a lot of benefits with very little downside. Hmm. And Troy, like when we talk about, maybe it's a route we can, I don't want to rabbit hole into it. I mean, but when you're talking about having enough caloric intake, because there's some individuals out there who just want to build up lean muscle and there's some that want to actually build mass. I know that everybody's not the same. Uh, we understand that. But do you give your athletes or give people who just come up and ask you like on, on forums, like, is there a general rule? Like you need to have this much caloric intake if you're doing lean muscle exercise or if you're just working three days a week um, so that they actually have enough nourishment for their body? Yeah, I, I want to be absolutely clear. Number one, I'm not an registered dietitian or two, even a qualified nutritionist. I have exercise physiology background and I do work in that space. So I will give some suggestions, recommendations, but I, I think it's always important to clarify where you're. I don't like to go too far outside of my, my scope of practice or, or what I think is my expertise. I think, you know, for a general rule of thumb, there's um, estimators that are fairly well established in, in the literature and available online through calculators that we can plug in either our, our total body mass or our fat mass, oh, sorry, our fat-free mass, so all of our lean tissue, um, that we can then add to our, an activity amount amplifier. So if I'm very sedentary, it will be a sort of a 1.0 or a 1.1. If I'm highly active and training four, five, six, seven times a week, it might be 1.8 or 1.9. That will give us, a, I think, a good starting point for general caloric intake of what we require. Now, that's a starting point. Um, what you have to do is eat to that um, and generally see whether you increase or decrease in body mass. If you're, if you're you know, rapidly decreasing in body mass, it's probably a little low. Um, if you're eating at that amount and gaining a body mass, it's probably a little high. And there's a number of reasons why it can be high. Um, I'm sure at some point you've talked around the idea of metabolic adaptation. Potentially, if you've lost a lot of weight, your body essentially downregulates that. Mm. Um, I don't think it's, an, it's a friction to the weight loss um, and healthy, healthy protein, but it's not insurmountable. And a theory that is becoming more popular in the research literature uh, from a guy called Herman Ponsa. Uh, is the energy constraint model is essentially when we do lots and lots of exercise, our body, uh, a calorie burned isn't a calorie we can add to our calorie expenditure. Mm. Somewhere around 70%, but it could be as low as 50 or as high as 90% of those calorie burns when we're doing high levels of exercise are actually our calories that are added to total daily energy expenditure which I think is a really interesting kind of concept because, yeah. you know, often we'll look at our wearable device or, you know, our treadmill or our tonal and it will spit out and say, hey, I did, you know, I just burnt 400 calories. I'm going to go and maybe not, you know, I'm going to refuel. I'm going to fuel my body for that. And sometimes those, there's assumptions made on those numbers that they spit out. None of them are perfect. But number two, you've got these kind of concepts around energy and strength where it might be, if it says 500 calories, it might be as you know, low as 250 or maybe as high as 450. And so I think my long way of saying that you have to start somewhere and then track and experiment and mm. understand what you're, whether you're increasing or decreasing weight. Generally, if you're pretty accurate, and there's a level of inaccuracy in tracking calories and, and tracking weight, but if you're tracking on a fairly regular basis and you're seeing trends, not daily changes, but trends over a week or two of decreasing in body mass, you're probably in a calorie deficit. Whether you want to be in a calorie deficit is, you know, up to you and your particular, what your goals are, or a calorie surplus or um, in sort of, you know, in a calorie neutral. Um, and I'd say the other thing as it relates particularly to, 
Because most of us don't necessarily always want to just lose body mass, but we want to maintain muscle mass and potentially lose fat mass. And I think the other, well, without getting too far out of my scope, I would say there's reasonable evidence that we want to prioritize protein to an extent, 1.2, maybe as much as 1.6 grams per kilo, uh, 0.7 to 1 grams per pound is probably where the research literature suggests that our protein intake needs to be mm-hmm. um, if we want to prioritize maintenance of muscle mass while we're resistance training. And so we kind of, of those calories, we need to get a chunk of them from protein, carbohydrates and fats. I'm not, there's tons of different diets. I'm not fasting, you know, but that's not my wheelhouse. But we can get that. We can get that one serving, maybe two or three might be slightly better, but um, we probably need to prioritize protein if we want to maintain lean or muscle mass. And maybe we need to prioritize that a little more if we're in a calorie deficit and maybe a little more as we get older because we become quite insufficient at building muscle as we get older. Mm-hmm. Dr. Stu Phillips out of McMaster has done probably some of the best work in that space. So just paraphrasing what I believe he would say. Yeah. So let's get practical here because I am very curious to know, let's just say, you know, someone is trying to lose fat. If you had to guide that person in the fitness space and their like main goal is fat loss because they've obviously, they're metabolically not very efficient. Maybe they have a training background, maybe not. Where are you going to start with that person? Number one, yeah, you've got to, got to calculate a starting point for calorie intake. I, I, I do fundamentally believe it. It's an intake outtake type, type, type of kind of, kind of, kind of, kind of at the fundamental level, the, the most important. So we need to, we need to calculate what we think is a starting point for where they're going to be in a, in a calorie neutral kind of, kind of state would be sort of number one. Secondly, it would be, what do you like to do and what you're going to stick with? Always enjoyment. Um, we have tons of data around this and in at tonal, we can look at, you know, your rating, your star rating of a particular program and how more likely you are to train. And this has been shown in the research literature. The more you are enjoyable, particularly when it's not a habit and you're not particularly familiar with doing it. Enjoyment is a big predictor of whether you're going to come back and do it again or not. So mm-hmm. number, number, number two is uh, what do you enjoy doing? And let's build most of your training around what you enjoy doing. If you really love running, then I'm going to have a, a, a running heavy aerobic program. I'm not going to a, you know, get you to cycle or row, even though that might be, you know, rowing might burn more calories per minute because you don't like it and therefore you're not like going to stick to it. Um, so I'd start with what, what they like to do. And then I would say there are independent benefits to both fat loss and to uh, muscle mass maintenance or even increasing elite muscle to both aerobic training and to resistance training. And so I personally would try to, as long as the person is not absolutely you know, livid against it, to incorporate both of those concepts. I think generally, there's a, there was a paper in 2012 by, I want to say it was Willis and colleagues. I could be wrong, so I wouldn't quote me on that, but they basically showed that aerobic training uh, was good for, for fat loss, resistance training on its own, or when it added to it, uh, didn't increase. I actually think there's been a ton of research since that 2012 paper that says completely the opposite. There's been, there was a meta-analysis in 2022, another one in 2021, that the fat loss that you get from resistance training or from aerobic training, neither are particularly massive. It's, we'd love it if like they just dropped off, but one or 2% typically, 1.42, I think is what the meta-analysis found was the average fat loss from a, a resistance training program. People that weren't doing resistance training that then started. 20 or 20 or so studies that, that kind of went into that meta-analysis. 
Um, but they, they're both uh, somewhat effective. I personally, and I think the evidence slightly leans towards aerobic training on its own, would be prioritized from a fat loss perspective. While resistance training can increase uh, that fat loss, it's not it's not huge. But the muscle mass maintenance and increase and, and or maintaining or increasing your muscle mass is essential for metabolic burn as well as physical function. And we know that unless we're very sedentary, we don't really get those increases in muscle mass from aerobic training. If you're sedentary and you start walking, you actually do get hypertrophy of the muscle mass. But once you get above a minimum level, you don't get a lot stronger um, from walking. I think most people know that. And even from running, there's not huge increases in already somewhat trained people. But you do get that muscle mass increases from resistance training. And so, you know, we know that if we want to be able to sort of you know, keep the fire alive, if, it, if we want to kind of use some of those analogies, that muscle is metabolically active. It burns calories. It's important for that kind of piece of um, from uh, a health and maintenance standpoint, there's benefits to the strength and power side of that. I would say practically, I would do what they want to do. I would definitely incorporate both aerobic and resistance training if I had a, an opportunity. Probably, you know, depending on what time they have available and where they're at and their starting fitness and their starting weight and what their timelines are, we can manipulate how frequency, what intensity. Uh, it really, you know, we, we can, there's so many variables that we can dial up or dial down. If you're, you know, willing to give this, you want to lose 20 pounds over the next 12 months, it's a big time window. Like, do you need to hit it seven times a week in the gym, four aerobic sessions, three resistance? No. You know, let's start at some of those minimums. Let's do two gym sessions weights. Let's go out and walking. Let's start a calorie expenditure and we can assess it and, you know, tweak up and down as we, as we go. You want in the next three months to lose a substantial amount of fat mass. Okay, well, we're gonna to have to be a little more aggressive. I'm not a proponent of huge calorie deficits. I think anything beyond kind of around 500 calories a day deficit um, is pretty tough to, the evidence suggests to uh, the recomping evidence. So body recomposition is the idea of maintaining or increasing muscle mass as we decrease fat mass. Anything once you get over 500 calories, you can no longer increase muscle mass, the research, or, or it's very rare for it to happen. Mm. The average research, it doesn't happen. So I tend to go for calorie deficits of, the, of moderate levels because they allow us to maintain or increase muscle mass, which whether people know they want to do or not, generally they do want to do, whether it's for the strength of outcomes or if it's just for the, the physical aesthetics of the, what the how they want their body to look or um, because of the metabolic um, sort of active tissue that muscle is. But yeah, you might have to increase in order to, to, to get that kind of calorie, calorie deficit and kind of things. You might need to train more frequently, but we can train, we can change the intensity, we can change the frequency, uh, we can change the mode of exercise. All of those are, can lead to Rome. There are many, if fat loss is Rome, there are many low roads that, and we, we really have the opportunity to manipulate them. I will add one additional tidbit from some sort of sort of data from Tonal that I find quite interesting is if you looked at some of our engagement data, um, there's a number of different modes that you can do in Tonal. And in, this isn't Tonal specific, but you could, you know, you could go to the gym and you could follow a program, like, you know, two days a week, three days a week for four number of weeks. You could go in and have a workout, like this is my high intensity workout and I go and go and do that. Or you could just go in and, hey, I'm going to pick what I do today. We find there's a significant people that choose a program on tonal train on average about 30% more than people that just don't in without a plan. Mm. And I think that's something that really is, is um, 
we probably can all relate to that. When we go into the gym, you're like, oh, what am I going to do today? And you know, you move around a couple of things. Well, that's busy. I'm going to go over here and kind of thing. And you like, you think, and the reality is you enjoy the session less and you don't come back the next time as frequently. So following some sort of structured program, there's probably some behavioral science concepts for the idea of sort of leaning into a program, your commitment device, you've committed to this program. I've signed up for it. Therefore, I'm going to do it. But there's also just probably this element of enjoyment and having some structure. And so I generally, if you're, if you want to, let's, let's follow a program. Um, and let's even better, if we can do one better than that is let's follow a program that you have some input and autonomy into. Even if you're a novice trainer, what do you enjoy? I just changed it from running to cycling because Courtney told me she enjoyed cycling. Now you're going to have more commitment to that, to that program. Sort of concept of self-determination theory and the idea of how um, having competency, feeling that I can do this is important. Autonomy, some sort of input into the decision and relatedness that I feel part of a community or part of something larger than myself. But that autonomy piece is something that I think is super important. So yeah, I would say I would get them to follow a program. I would lay it out if they wanted to. Not everyone follows the same advice, but that's where I would start. And I would try and give them some input into that program. And I think that's how we're going to get them on the right track at least. That's great. And I, with Tonal, I know that uh, not everybody's the same, like in any industry, but does Tonal and do you train other practitioners around the country and stuff? Some, some people love the, you know, the, your approach and do you have, do they have a specific set of uh, physiologists that they work with and they're certified? Is that how Tonal works or are they just mostly into the equipment side of you know, exercise? Yeah, right now, you know, we're, we're still, it's, it's fine. We're still relatively early stages as a company while we, you know, sign LeBron James and Serena and you've seen our Super Bowl adverts and <laughs> we're still, we're, we're still actually relatively in our infancy of where the opportunity to go. So right now there's the product, um, you can get coach led guided programs that my team writes and the, uh, in conjunction with the coaches themselves. And you can sign up for an individual workout or a four week program and there's, 180 or something different programs you want to lose mass increase uh sorry increase muscle mass decrease fat mass you know improve your fitness there's, there's goal specific outcomes you can um, do that on an individual workout i want to do yoga today and there's a yoga workout you can do or a high intensity or you can just go in and create your own workout or do that kind of free lift just go in the gym and pick what you want and again allowing people to choose how they want to use the equipment we don't sort of certify trainers sort of a tonal certified trainer currently uh, without giving away uh, confidential information that I might not have a job for uh, I would say it's, it's a discussion that we've had I think there's certainly an opportunity the response from the fitness industry right the broader industry right now is is in a bit of a transition right pre-covid there was pretty much gyms and maybe peloton um as is a household names um then there was you know covid and all the gyms shut down and so home fitness had this huge boom and now we're sort of sort of hopefully somewhat post-pandemic related kind of pieces and then there's this sort of more hybrid world of hey you know i can train in person with someone i can go to a gym i can train at my home and so how the fitness industry as an industry responds to that you know my my personal bias is there's going to be a lot of hybrid fitness out there i want to go and see an in-person trainer a couple of times a week but i also want to work out in my home a couple of times a week mm. i love the community of this particular class but i also don't want to have to deal with you know monday night six o'clock uh in january waiting for equipment and so um i think there's an opportunity for certifying and for educating and for working with trainers but it's not something that we've done as of yet 
Okay, so I also have another question. Maybe this is more of just me, my personal interest in this, but what are your favorite, maybe like functional movements that you feel like every person could benefit in doing? So outside of maybe an exercise program, because I think you're really spot on with that, is that there is some accountability and like this feeling of accomplishment when like you can show up and you can, you can check that box and you actually feel good doing it. And most of us do, we have that, those endorphins and hormones. We're like, man, we just feel better participating in this and showing up on a consistent basis. But even outside of that, because I would be, I would, I would be willing to bet that a lot of athletes and people that you see that have, that have shown like in the data and literature that there's, there is a longer life expectancy, lower mortality and rate of disease with movement. Like we see sitting is like smoking. So what movements, movement or movements should people just be doing on a regular basis that maybe just like, you know, squats or lunges or push-ups or things like that. It's like not necessarily for increasing all of these different components of our fitness, but more or less keeping us resilient, keeping us moving, keeping our, our body mobile and like hinging, being able to, just so we don't lose range of motion and, and lose some of these skill sets. Like what, what would you say like your top one, top movements or functional movements are? Yeah, I'll, I'll go general to specific. Number one, anything that you're willing to do consistently. Number one, I don't, you like to lunge, lunge. You like to squat, squat. You like to do a push up, do a push up, just move. Um, that sort of research on the exercise snacks, they did sit to snack, sit to stand. So I'm sitting and I stand and I think they did 60 seconds of it or something around that. And that increased, um, had you know, dramatic effects on sort of cardiovascular and metabolic health as well as on strength and power. And so my, my sort of default is anything you're willing to do. If to go a little more specific, I'm a big fan of those compound moves. I think, I think squatting, hinging, so whether it's a deadlift type of movement or more of a squat type of movement and upper body push, like a push up type of things. Oh, well, we're going to get our biggest bang for our buck. It makes multi joints. And we're going through, you know, through a full range of motion it is important to not lose that functionality. I do think, uh, particularly as we start getting a little older. And when I say a little older, I class people like me in my forties as being a little older in this, not an older adult as an over 65, but almost somewhat prepping myself for being over 65. The ability to do independent sort of unilateral exercises, so single leg exercises, with the challenge, both the strength and the stability standpoint, I think can't be over overvalued. I, I think they're super important. I think I notice personally that I, I don't have the, the balance that I had 10 or 15 years ago. And whether that's because I'm aging or just because like most people, I've had a fair few surgeries, particularly sporty people. I mean, my orthopedics, I'm ruptured an Achilles, broken an ACL, had a back surgery. Like these are things that people in their 40s deal with. And all of those kind of mess up our neurocognitive function and our ability to balance and to respond. So I'm a big fan of, of single leg exercises or, or, or sort of unilateral exercises. And to go one step more specific, the research literature is, is quite clear now, at least longitudinally or cross, sorry, cross-sectionally is that power, so that's force times velocity. So not just how strong you are, but how quickly you move, declines almost twice as fast as strength does. So strength is just, can I lift this weight? Doesn't matter if it takes me a second or, or 10 seconds. Um, power decreases twice as fast. 
as, as strength does, particularly after the age of 40. And actually, tonal data, um, we mine tens and tens of thousands of people are looking. So this is one of the where I geek out quite a lot. Um, but we show the similar, similar decrease if we look at this cross-sectionally. So I'm not looking at the same 40-year-old as they were, you know, we've only been around since 2018. So I don't know if that 40-year-old when they were also 50, 60, and 70, but if I look at 10,000 40-year-olds versus 10,000 50-year-olds, on average, um, the 50-year-olds have less, a little less strength, but a significant amount less, less power. And again, at 60, and again, at 70. And so I would say, and I think there is research to, to back this up, that power related, trying to move quickly. This isn't like I've got to be doing hand cleans in the gym. If you're structurally sound, like there's no particular reason, you know, health, medical related reason why can't, trying to do a jump squat, right? Jump up. When was the last time that you jumped off the air? Like, it's embarrassing. Like, I, I tried to not even dunk, but like touch the bottom of the basketball net the other, but wow, I haven't jumped. Like, I don't know when 40-year-old people jump that unless you bring that in. Or just trying to squat with some, you know, a bodyweight squat with some speed. Um, trying to move powerfully um, has been shown, number one, that decreases, but we can we can slow that decline of power decrease. There's, there's research and tonal actually, you know, tonal users increase their power more than they do their strength mm. with age. Um, which is interesting, almost twice as much, which is, which is, I think is, is important. And number two, that power decrease is associated more strongly than aerobic fitness or strength fitness than quality of life in later life. Wow. It's the ability to get out of the chair is not a strength issue. It's a power issue. Your ability to be independent is a power issue to walk up the stairs. You need power to get up those stairs. It doesn't feel like power if we're healthy, but when we're when we're not as healthy and we've lost that power, strength is the, the basis of that. It's force times velocity. So strength being the force, but moving fast is super important. So I'd start with compound exercise, anything that you like, compound exercises, focus on sort of single single uh, leg exercises that can work your balance. And if you can do them quickly, I think that's uh, the absolute sort of perfect thing for healthy aging. This has been fantastic. I really love this. Like whenever I think about exercise, people look at me, Troy, like I'm just like a thin dude. So people look at me like, I'm not taking exercise advice from you, Motley. And I'm like, I get it. It's not happening. But it's funny because like the other guys in my family are pretty, they're pretty stout. You know, they're pretty thick guys. And, um, but you're right when you're talking about, uh, even as big as they look like brother and such, you're right. That, that power, you can tell as I gotten older, it's declined. Uh, it, it, I will tell you a funny story. And I'm, I was at the basketball gym and I, man, I used to play basketball all the time. I went up and there's these guys on the other, and they're just, you know, they're just cranking out threes. I thought it was gonna be fun. And I, I went up there, man, and I used to play, play point. I was like, all right, I got this. I ran up and I started to jump off my left leg. My left leg almost buckled. <laughs> and I was so embarrassed because the ball hit the bottom of the rim and it, you know, hit my hand back. Cause it just, and I was like, I'm over 40. Like, this is not good. Like, I've got to be able to get back, you know, and, and just like you say, jump. Like, I, who, who jumps all the time? I don't. But for people out there, I'm like, just lightly jumping. I mean, it's, it's a challenge for me. And so I think like that kind of advice, like I was wondering, I was like, when Courtney said, it, I was like, yes, what is something I can particularly do just to get everything in my body flowing? So that was great. Yeah, yeah. it's, I, I feel the same. And, and, and until I, you know, I reread the research or I kind of dive into some of our data. I'm like, when was the last time I, I like, I, I'm not a particularly huge guy or, or thing, but I like to train and I've invested my life. When was the last time I actually took my own advice on some of this stuff? And it, it can, that power side is not something that you train a lot if you don't intentionally do it. 
and just to just to put some numbers to it, like just from some tonal data that I just pulled up. So if you took like a neutral grip deadlift, you know, that's just a just a deadlifter with a with a trap bar, it's a it's a safer position. You know, we we're seeing increases in power from some of our users, particularly our female users, like 40 to 60 year olds, like making 30 and 40% increases in their power in that particular move. Over, uh, you know, this is an average of 150 to 180 days, just looking at some, some of the ends that I've got here. So you can train it. It's not that, you know, it's, it's gone, you're never going to get it back. You can train it if you try. Strength is a train. You can make strength changes, increases. Muscle mass later in life, postmenopausal for women, it's definitely tougher. You're probably going to have to lift a bit heavier to do some of that to get muscle mass. But most people don't really care about the muscle mass itself. They care what it gives them and what gives them is strength and power. And that's what seems is critical for, particularly for health span and for, for living these, these long active lives, mm. but we have to train it, but it's definitely trainable if we do. That's really good. And I feel really, I feel a lot better about it because I deadlifted yesterday and I'm feeling the effects of it right now. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Those glutes and hamstrings are a little sore. Yeah. Oh yeah. A little bit, but you're, the, the power point, the power like element there that we talked about is really true. And it even comes back to, we've talked about this on other episodes, like just doing these like primal movements, like going outside and being a kid, like jumping around, like, and you feel it right. As an adult, like you know, Dr. Motley just said, like jumping up. I actually, <laughs> this is a funny story. Like last night I was, so my middle child does competitive gymnastics. And so she's, I'm just amazed at what her body can do like all the time. I mean, she's eight years old and she's ripped and she can just like, she can just do things that are insane. So I was trying to get her to train me on doing handstands. And so my husband was walking by and I literally go up for a handstand and like kick him right in the mouth and like his mouth's bleeding. He's like, what are you doing? And I was like, didn't you know I was going to do a handstand? He's like, why on earth? <laughs> what? Yeah. Why, why walking through the house, like in the hallway, did I think that you were just going to spontaneously handstand? <laughs> and honestly, it was so hard, but I was glad I tried. We, we had to sacrifice the space, but. The most, the most humbling thing I've done in the past couple of years is, is, is go to a trampoline park with my kids. I'm like, how hard can a baby jump on a trampoline? Wow. When was the last time you mm. did this? Like, it's really like coordination, yeah. balance, power, timing. I'm like, they just run up and like start jumping kind of thing. I'm like, I was sore for days after doing that. And you know, my best cardiovascular fitness these days is, is I play soccer with my kids in the basement. When was the last time <laughs> I sprinted for a couple of meters and started like, I like to lift. I, I, my cardiovascular fitness is not super high. I, I walk a lot for the benefits of doing it. And I like to listen to, to podcasts while I'm doing it, but I don't do a lot of high intensity exercise, stop, start motion. Playing with them in the basement. I'm like, wow, it's, it challenges your body in new ways. And I, I think there's a, a lot to be said for just yeah, continuing to, 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 to try and experiment as we get a little older. Mm. Yeah, totally agree. Maybe that's the missing piece to the puzzle, guys. If, if maybe if we do our, our, our training, the stuff that we like to do, but then don't forget to try some of these things that we used to do as a kid, because even in small, like micro doses, you'll feel it. And you know, when you're sore, cause you're like, wow, my muscles have not done that in a very long time. So maybe I should try it a little more frequently. Everybody go, you know, shoot some hoops, jump, a, jump on the trampoline and try. If, some I, if, if, I, if I'm in a cast, by the time this time, this podcast comes out, you know, my handstand trials didn't go very well. <laughs> <laughs>
<laughs> yeah, I, I'm gonna have to work on work on mine a little more because I, I realized real quick that that was not. And, and Troy, we'll know how it goes when uh, Mike comes back and he's got four. All his eyes are black and he's got beat up <laughs> bruises all over his face. You know, exactly. We'll know what happened. So true. Well, this has been so fun. I love this conversation about fitness movement. I think that most people are very receptive to it. It's just sometimes we feel stuck and like, Hey, we're trying and the needle's not moving or, you know, I've been doing the same thing for so long and I'm not getting any results. And so maybe it is, a, a, is really, you know, either taking some rest. Like I never knew, you know, that idea or concept of taking, taking some downtime and then realizing like, wow, even with a few days or a week, like I'm in a deep deficit, like my body needs significantly more support to really get to a place where I can start rebuilding. Mm -hmm. Um, and so if you're in that place and maybe you've hit a plateau or you feel stagnant, maybe I look at those things, evaluate them, evaluate like the, the assessment you did of what your output is. How do you feel after your workout? Do you feel like, you know, you went in there and you worked really hard, but like your body is, is you feel brain fogged and just really broken down. Like maybe you were not recovered going into it or, or maybe it's stale. Maybe you just like mentally are not in it. Like maybe you need to change up the type of workout you're doing, or maybe just incorporate more play and more fun to, to what you're currently doing. Because sometimes that can just refresh you in a new way, bring some joy back to moving your body, connecting with your body. So thanks for, uh, for really diving into all of that with us, Troy. It's been so fun getting to know so you fun. and your work. No, I super appreciate it. I love, love the conversation. And I, I just, I echo everything that you said. I think, I think there's so much opportunity for us to, to kind of really just help ourselves, right? Um, whether we're not working at all and we need to start doing something or we're doing a ton um, and maybe we need to back it off. I think, I think we can, if we can kind of almost critically evaluate our training and, for, and how we're going about it, we can kind of make the most of it because I don't, I think that's what everyone wants to do, right? You want to get the maximum out of your training. And that's hopefully uh, what, you know, some of my background and experience can do and some of the to data from Tone moving forward. So super enjoyed the conversation. Thank you so much. So great. Yeah. What, um, where can people find you? Because I, I love your Instagram because you show a lot of workouts and then you actually like break down a lot, like time under tension and all these things that like we kind of touched on a little bit. But if you're more interested in how to do that, especially if you have the tonal system, there's like, you do a great job of posting reels and videos, short videos that can train people on the language and the movement. So can you share with us where people can find you if they want to learn a little bit more? Yeah, absolutely. I would say number one, I am about a decade late to Instagram. I started an Instagram account in December, I did my first ever, ever post on December 5th. But I, I kind of, you know, it's, uh, one of those things I, I wanted to be able to share a lot. So what I kind of share on that Instagram account, it's uh, at Strength Science Troy. Strength Science Troy is is the kind of thing. It's, it's evidence-based fitness. I use tonal a lot, but not just tonal. I use free weights too. And, and most of the stuff that I would say I post on there is not tonal specific. It's about how we can interpret the current and research and, and, and apply that to our training. Uh, sometimes it's a lot about building muscle or building strength, but sometimes it might be around um, habit formation, I mentioned sort of, you know, self-determination theory there. I think one of the things I've been extremely fortunate over the last 
20 years is to work with all these experts, strength and, the best strength conditioning coaches in the world, the best exercise physiologists, the best behavioral scientists, the best sports psychologists. And what I try to do, whether I'm successful or not, uh, is, is to share a little bit from all of them and what current research uh, is, is kind of suggesting because things change. You know, what we believe, what I believe five or 10 years ago, and even in some cases, five months ago, you know, we built to the body of evidence. We've changed what our thoughts and opinions are. An example, range of motion. Um, I would have, you know, I actually think full range of motion is great. We now know that long range of motions, uh, long muscle length range of motions actually build hypertrophy the same uh, as full range of motions or very similar. So uh, we're constantly updating. So uh, at Strength Science Troy is where I share a bunch of that. So please like follow uh, me if you'd like information there. And I'm also on LinkedIn. Just Google my name. I'm not sure what the digit numbers after Troy Taylor are, but uh, you'll see my picture, I'm sure. <laughs> very cool. Very cool. Well, thanks guys for joining us today. Oh, Dr. Motley, always good to co-host with you. Doesn't Thank always you. happen. So, hey, <laughs> well, we're having a That's good time. Um, I hope that this conversation has served you guys. If you love the episode, let us know. Tag us over at the Health Institute. Share this episode. Write a review. We love to connect with you. You guys are our people. We hope that you are well. We hope that you have an incredible start to your new year. And let us know how we can support you if this conversation is serving you make sure you connect with us. All right. Until the next episode. Thanks guys. See you guys. Thanks. Hey, Dr. Axe here. I want to say thank you so much for listening today. If you enjoyed this episode, make sure to like and subscribe the show so you don't miss a thing. Also, if you're in search of more natural health content, you can follow us at Health Institute on Instagram or subscribe to our newsletter using the link in the show notes below. Hey, thanks a lot and have a blessed week.